You're listening to the seventh episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 7, Just a Kid. Trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything, eh? How would that work? Let's start out easy, at the other end of the spectrum from how I was raised to live. You don't want to live a godless life, do you? You want to include or involve the Almighty in your week, your month, your year, to some degree. So, when you plan those out, put your schedule together, live your life, you try to keep, in the back of your mind at least, the idea that you hope how you're living is reasonably okay with or even pleasing to your God who loves you. This can simply be subtractive, just making sure that nothing much you think God would have a big problem with is a big part of your week. Not a big deal. Well, that's not what we did in my group. Let's take it up a notch. You want to live to please God, living a Christian life rather than just a worldly one. So when you make your plans, schedule your month, you let God know that his input is welcome and that none of your plans are, so to speak, set in stone, graven on a pair of tablets or anything like that yet. So you'll go about your day, mindful of any divine resistance or displeasure being communicated to you, perhaps through happenstance, perhaps from a friendly Christian acquaintance of the kind you trust and like. Well, that's not what we did either. Let's take it up another notch. You want to live a God-pleasing, Bible-obedient life. You can't put anything on your weekly schedule without feeling that God has flat-out okayed it first. So you pray about each thing, and if you feel that God and his spokespersons at church have no objections and are in full support, then it's okay with you too. Apart from that, of course, you can't do any of the things. Well, that's not what we did at all. So let's take it up another notch. You want to walk according to the Lord's leading. You don't get to make a schedule or plan your own weeks, months, and years. God has a perfect plan, a divine schedule, a narrow path in mind for you to follow. And you have to listen to the Bible and your fellow Christians to guess at what it might be. And you're just going to follow it. If you don't get it right, God and they will absolutely refuse to work with you and you will then have no chance of success ever again until you fix your error. Your entire life will screech to a halt, waiting until you have judged your habit of watching and worse yet enjoying Dave Chappelle comedy or Scarlett Johansson pics on Instagram or whatever it is. You want to be serious about the Lord and following his perfect path for you, so best to let older, wiser, and more controlling heads do the heavy lifting with that schedule. Well, that's not what we did either. Let's take it up a notch again. You know you will stand before a righteous, sin-hating God one day. God has a perfect path, a plan, a weekly schedule for you, and you don't get to know what it is. You just have to trust and wait on him before acting. The image you've been taught is that there is a path in the darkness, and you have a candle to keep lit, and it will light each step of the way if you follow that path as it is revealed to you one step at a time. You don't get to look down the road. The thought is to please God, but if I'm pleasing myself, I can't please God. I'm going to satisfy self, and I'm not pleasing God. And if you do things that deviate from the path, 
God will be forced to punish you, smacking you with his loving stick of judgment like a farmer herding cows away from a dangerous corner of the field. Never forget that, boys and girls. The all-seeing eye of God is watching everything you do. When you do things just to please yourself, that is sin. And Romans 6 and 23 says the wages of sin is death. Never forget that you are a sheep in God's flock with other Christians put in place as under-shepherds to steer the course of your week. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Purgeth every son whom he receiveth. Very strong, scourging, very strong. Be guided by their correction. Be a good sheep. Be cattle. Learn with your ass, so to speak. Keep it bared and ready for their instruction. God's will is that you go in the direction he and his humble servants are humbly, faithfully, lovingly smacking you toward with infinite patience. Job could say, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Oh, there was peace. There was fragrance. There was beauty. Connection with that. Oh, brethren, how beautiful all these things are. A sermon at church or Bible conferences is good if it stings a bit. Pleasure of any other kind is sin and guilt and shame are what Christ died to give to us. The world is dead to this kind of loving correction. Be sensitive to it. I challenge you, dear young people, to go out right now to the city of Montreal. Go downtown. Go where they're having those races. Go to the theaters. See if there's something that will sustain your soul. You'll find nothing. You'll see something that will feed your lust, but it will never, never satisfy the hunger and the thirst of your soul. What is necessary to satisfy that hunger and thirst is not to be found in this world. This world is a spiritual wilderness, a spiritual desert. And the sooner we learn this in our Christian experience, the better. In fact, an absence of stinging smitings on your hindquarters means either that you are aimed and moving in more or less the right direction, or that God doesn't actually love you enough to punish and guide. And you aren't saved at all. You'll burn one day. Because the Bible clearly tells us that those he loves, God chastens. So no chastening, no swats to make you more chaste, more devout, more conformed to God's plan for you, might simply be evidence that you aren't one of his children at all, and so he has no divine plan for you besides an eternity of torment in the darkness and pitch-black flames of hell, with only the weeping and wailing and gnashing of the teeth of the enormous congregations of all of the other flambéed fake Christians to ring in your flaming ears in the dark forever. Or worse yet, you might get kicked out of the brethren. That's what we did. So you needed to ask Jesus into your heart again and really mean it this time because remember, God loves you. So stop listening to that rap music. The fact that you want to might be a sign you aren't really saved at all and should ask Jesus into your heart again and really, really mean it this time. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, for never say that you're walking with God if you're going in a path of disobedience. God will never uh, walk with you in that path. 
Back in the day, it scared the hell into me to try to dial this how to include God in my daily life thing back a bit from where that knob had always been tuned to from childhood up. In case you didn't notice, our knobs went up to 11. What would turning it down all the way to 10 feel like? Terrifying is what? Michael Vetter was raised in my Plymouth Brethren group and met a depressed, brittle me in my teens, both of us pining after the same girl. His family had a fairly out-there take on spirituality while still trying to work within the Plymouth Brethren system. Kind of a Buddhist philosophy is as soon as you can be free of yourself and be one with God and have your focus so solely on him that you don't look at yourself. Well, it comes across as impossible rhetoric. Like It does seem I, Buddhist. Like I, I have a couple of times in the podcast put Ethel Hayhoe's um husband Bert Allen saying, you know, we have to be empty vessels. Are you an empty vessel? Oh dear brethren, are we empty vessels? As one said before the fullness of God waits upon an empty vessel. And it's that idea of emptying yourself that if you had any wish or any emotional landscape or any thoughts or any direction or passion, that all of that needed to be surrendered. And it's, it's so ubiquitous. I'm, I'm seeing, you know, stripers back and all these Christian groups and they're all like a giant Christian chorus singing surrender, surrender, surrender. And I think like a lot of Christian things, that's exactly the wrong advice for me. I think the advice for me should be fight, (laughs) get back up and fight. Yeah. I I think if you're an empty vessel, then there's nothing in you. Um, Yep. I think you want to be a full vessel. (laughs) But if, you know, if you're even if you're an empty vessel, you, the vessel is still you. Yeah. You you are still the vessel. If, if you can, you can't take the you out of the equation, and that's the beauty of it. the The idea is to have the the spirit flow through you and things to come out of you. That no, they're not from me, but they went through me, and they and I was able to color them with me. You know, and that's that's the excitement of being in this body as a as an individual. Is it's me. <laughs> right, and and. You know, God is the author. And and uh, I remember that, you know, that worm of the dust theology uh, that we were so fond of in our group, um, where I am nothing and I'm worse than nothing. I'm my own worst enemy and I have to empty myself and get rid of self and everything I want is terrible and horrible and vile. And your father once said that we have to be very careful that we are not disrespectful to things that God created. Yeah, that I I agree with that. And I think the darkest, one of the darkest periods of my life was, um, back when I first met you. And I was, you know, after, after this girl or that girl, and the way I thought I was going to get them was, uh, by being as holy and as, as God focused and as spiritual as I possibly could be. And so I was getting up at five in the morning and I was getting on my knees and praying and reading my Bible and, and then going through all of this, like, painful flogging of myself or any any thought that would enter my head that wasn't um and it's it's like a monk's existence and it's devoid of of experience absolutely devoid of experience like you you don't do anything you're kind of useless to a boss let alone god or or anybody you're useless to the world if you're if you're empty like that it's like you're saying i'm a robot body for god to put a brain into of his own device and he actually seems to have created our emotional intellectual 
landscape and wants us to explore and wants us to grow and wants us to interact and connect and argue and agree and disagree. That's what I think. I, I am in total agreement with that. Yeah. Cause it's almost like we were taught that the body was like the least important thing, which in many ways I can go along with that, but then they were acting like, how are you dressed and how do you look and what's your hair like and what are your clothes like? And all of that is all that we care about. And as far as something inside that, there shouldn't even be anything inside. That should just be empty. And so it seems like there's something twist in the middle of that argument that we're no longer being a person inside. Uh, we're, we're empty inside and only the outside has all the rules to control it. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's not supposed to be any rules. No. Yet there's so, there's so many rules, rules controlling the outside shell. Very, you know, pharisaical at the age from from you know like 17 to 19 somewhere in there and it it makes my skin crawl I'm like i don't even want to remember that you're trying to be that or you're supposed to be that you thought it would I, I was trying to be the most sensitive and holy and all these all these different things that i was trying to be there was a level of me that knew that i was it was all an act it was i was putting that on performative is a word i keep using this season in the podcast what's weird is that my version of what you're talking about was much more mechanistic so that robotic reading of the bible every day and the robotic learning of everything and, and the prayers and it was all mechanical and repetitive and empty um there certainly wasn't sensitivity or emotion that was supposed to be in any of it which suited me just fine because uh, my emotions were inconvenient <laughs> They all involved wanting to kill myself and other people. And so uh, we just didn't go there. And then I wrote these songs where it would burst out. So much of how you're used to life going, how you expect it to work, is learned in childhood. I guess I learned that there was a cloud of church expectations filling the air we breathed, with my parents at my elbow 24-7 to make sure I didn't need to be punished to remind me that I'd hurt the family status by deviating, appearing to deviate, or being rumored to have deviated from expected church image and behavior. There is little that is more valuable than culture. We can't really exist properly without having some connection to groups of other human beings, to families, groups, to society, and civilization. Oh, we say society like it's a swear word now, the source of original sin, the font of all evil. But we show wisdom when we realize that even if we didn't outright kill various African and other indigenous people centuries ago, when we just worked to stamp out their culture, cut them off from it, orphan them from it, that was in many ways almost as bad. Many indigenous children survived the North American residential school system, but that didn't mean that they were okay. With their culture, the next best thing to surgically removed, they often never figured out how to put workable adult lives together. Substance abuse, crime, and suicide ravaged their communities. These people had been broken simply by cutting their culture out of them. One of the real tragedies of underparented children is that they are rudderless and rootless, disconnected from what would normally be a family, a community, and a culture. Crime communities and cults and the like have the appeal of offering a solution to that clear need for a community, for a culture. So the the cult that I was in was started by a pedophile. They, they uh, yes, they've got um, got some charitable charitable arms, which they advertise very much and say all the good works they're doing. But what people don't know is that behind them is a cult of which is destroying and is holding destroyed families right now. Uh, and always has done. So but by destroying families, I'm talking about whereby children 
uh, never see the parents again, where a husband and a wife, they never see each other again, where uh, grandparents uh, never see their grandchildren again and vice versa. Now, growing up as we did wasn't nearly as bad as all of that, of course. But I think I dare draw a few parallels. Obviously, most of the situation was different. I grew up living with my ever-watchful parents, a middle-class, white, Canadian, 80s kid, going to a middle-of-the-road, adequately funded school I didn't have to live at. I was certainly bullied and knocked around, and teachers were sometimes cruel. But our school wasn't in any way like a residential school, used as an organ of the Anglican or Catholic Church to stamp out and cut us off from our culture. In fact, our school had the Lord's Prayer and the National Anthem and God Save the Queen to give people like me a morning connection to our culture. It felt like going out to meeting because it was kind of like that. Same thing with Remembrance Day. It was, in fact, in the case of we Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, brethren, kids, and so on, many of our own parents at home acting as agents of the church who ensured we were cut off as much as possible from what would have otherwise been our culture, our friends, our spouses, our community, our lives. As a teacher myself, and especially during COVID, and knowing pioneers of the homeschooling movement like Emily's dad, Vince, I get the appeal of homeschooling. I really do. Might do it myself if I had kids. Looking back at my teenage years, though, I shudder to think of how much more alienated and cut off from humanity I, a kid with no ability to connect to anyone in our Christian community, and parents cutting me off from all other Christian groups, would have been had I also been homeschooled by them. The education would no doubt have been better. The socialization would have been, well, I can't imagine what I would have done without music and art class and going to band and eating in the cafeteria with a few people at school I could connect with. Ruth, raised like me, only without large Plymouth Brethren groups nearby to make sure her youth group at least was large and active, makes the argument against homeschooling. Given my experience of being kept out of public schools because of fear, like, I don't think fear is ever a healthy reason to do anything. We're not making a decision that we've thought about. We've looked at both sides of the issue. We've decided what's best for us. We're making a decision because we're frightened. And I don't think that's wise. I agree. So for me, as a parent, I made the decision to send my children to school because I know that they can get things from interacting with the other kids that no matter how much I try, I can't give them that at home. Mm -hmm. I know that it's so important to me that my kids have relationships with other trusted adults, like trusted teachers, counselors, you know, other adults besides their mom that they can learn to have those relationships because I think that's so important for those formative years. And I think this way because I didn't have those things. And I feel like I've struggled a lot because of not having them. Now, a lot of, I think, probably the smartest homeschoolers that I know make sure mm -hmm. their kids are in all these lessons and things. And that might fix that a little bit, do you think? Um, I'm not sure. So my experience of homeschooling was very, very different from what you're describing. My experience was very lonely and very isolating. Basically, my mom, who, God bless my mom, I love my mom, but she's not a teacher. 
So basically she would send me off with a workbook, with the material. She would expect me to complete the assignments, but she wouldn't teach me the work. She wouldn't talk it over with me. She didn't work on it with me. So there was, there was no one teaching me. Mm-hmm. Basically, I was just sitting down with workbooks every day, reading material, answering questions. I wasn't discussing what I was learning with an adult who knew a lot or had been educated or had had a lot of life experience. And for me, the only young people that I was allowed to mingle with at that age were the young people in meeting. Now, it's it's really important to understand. um, I grew up an hour and a half drive away from meeting. So we weren't part of the everyday lives of the meeting people because we live far away. Everyone else lived close by. They went to the same grocery stores. They went to the same schools, the same community. I grew up very far away from that community. Like the social media for, for good or for ill, it's really changed. I think how we relate to people like some of my very dearest, closest friends are people I very, very seldom see in person, but I'm very close to them through social media and I'm close to them in real life. Like we call each other, we talk on the phone, whatever, but we have real life connections, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have this in the Plymouth brethren. No, we didn't. It is painful to think back to how absolutely socially awkward I was. You know, when I was first venturing out a bit, when I first ventured out to my first job, or when I was just trying to interact with people after high school. And it is so hard because it didn't have to be that hard for me. If I had just had more interactions during those high school years, I wouldn't have struggled that way. You might have used the word ventured and found that other people didn't understand what you were saying. (laughs) You would learn to dumb down your vocabulary a little bit when dealing with certain people and not say ventured out. When you're talking to a 15-year-old, then it's easier if your manager at work doesn't understand a lot of the words that you have. Like I think that's a big one that I think that being above average intelligence and being eccentric and having trouble connecting to other people your own age sort of all go hand in hand. And this is what I think school can help with or not. I don't think school magically fixes that. Chris remembers missing his friends at school when his parents took him out of the system to homeschool him. Was that experience that you had that you just got in your bike and off you went and your parents didn't know exactly where you were? Mm-hmm. It didn't happen very often. We were in the middle of a cornfield. Um, okay. uh, it was, probably, I, I didn't drive back in where I grew up, but probably three, four miles to town. I remember one time I, we started homeschooling and I was probably fifth, sixth grade, but um, I missed you're, my friend. You're not, you're not getting on your bike. You're not biking to see friends and you're not going to school to see them either. You're just, you're not seeing kids unless they're meeting kids, right? Right. So one time I got on my bike and biked to town um, and I got there after school was over and it was just very strange seeing people. And I was like, hey, Jonathan Hyde suggests that it's getting increasingly rare for kids to ever be allowed to do that at that age anymore. Yeah, well, I wasn't allowed to after I came back and told mom. Right. So your mom was very forward thinking. Michael took his kids out of school and started homeschooling them when they were living in Brooklyn, hobnobbing with very progressive parents. 
Rather than needing to hide a television from brethren and parents, he and his wife had to hide their kids' toy guns from the children of progressive parents. Your kids used to live in Brooklyn, and your kids lived in a trailer uh, going across America. So you must have some thoughts about all that stuff. Living in Brooklyn was, raising the kids there was really hard because, well, there's a, a lot of brilliant, smart, cutting-edge people in, in Brooklyn. But the whole tendency towards protective thing, you know, the, the kids weren't allowed to have toy guns. None of the, the friends of my, my kids had, had any kinds of guns. And my kids begged for it. You know, mm-hmm. they, they want, and I was like, no reason not to have, you know, play with toy guns, bang, bang, you know, it's how I grew up. You know, the kids would call them poosers. Like I, I was saying before, we didn't use the word gun. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the things. And like trying to hide that from other, other kids. I, I was, the kids were a little more wild, my kids, than the other kids in Brooklyn. And they had a hard time hanging on to friends because they would go over to the friend's house and they would go crazy and they would have a great time. And the friends would have a great time, but the parents of the friends would be like, yeah. I cannot handle this child. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it comes down to, like you say, the coddling of, of the children and, and saying, Oh, what do you need? You know, what, 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 what are you feeling? And like trying to put your own feelings and say, Oh, are, are you feeling like a woman today? You know, like this daddy and mommy need to go. Like, are you feeling ready to leave yet? Are you Tyler? Instead you of saying Tyler, that? you know, get get to the car. It's like, are are you ready to go yet? Who is the parent? That's that's my question. Like, yes. who's the parent here? Are you going to be a parent or not? Like, step up to the plate. It was hard for me because I'm not an aggressive. I'm not an alpha person. Um, then there's also fighting against the other end of it. Uh, my dad came to us when Douglas was young, and it was like uh, we were all at a family get together, and he was like, you know, I I really don't understand um, why you're not. Of disciplining your child, you know, up, up over this thing and like completely like stepping in and saying, you guys aren't doing this right. Wanting some corporal punishment? Yeah, for things that he had done wrong. And I was like, well, I was like, no, like he's intelligent. It's not like you just spank him because it's not a cause and effect. Like he did this thing. So that means he gets spanked. It's like, no, you talk to him. And if he understands, then you don't, you don't, there is no need for it. So your father spanked all you kids a lot, which is why you have such broken wills and lack of individual thought nowadays. Well, there is this whole idea of, of breaking the will. And, and yep. uh, the only child I worked on was Nathan. And, Nathan had his uh, will broken? No, I'm saying that the only one that didn't work on, I'm pretty sure. So you, so you see, you see the rest of you as having broken wills and the rest of the better kids were very uh, passive people? No, not quite. Um, no. I, I know that like... I, I saw all my brothers and sisters get spanked ahead of me. So I knew exactly what was required mm-hmm. from the spanking. And I could put on the axe in an instant. So if I got a spanking, it was over. It was very, very short. I had, and I had the same thing in school. I would take the teachers right up to the point of get, getting paddled. This is back when they paddled in school. But I could see the breaking point and I would back off right at the breaking point. And other kids would get paddled for the same exact thing I was doing. But I, I would always, I would have that, that radar. The, the closest I came was being taken out into the hall and uh, getting down on my hands and knees and crying and going, please, please don't spank me, Mr. DeSanto. I'll kiss, I'll, I'll spit, shine your shoes. And I got down and I was rubbing his shoes. I put on such an act that he thought it was hilarious and I got out of it just through the comedy of it. I did not have this that game because with me, it was, there's a rule. And either it should be a rule or it shouldn't. And either I broke it or I didn't. So if you're angry with me, why? What did I do? 
And then it would become like a little lawyer versus adult thing of you're angry. What did I do? What rule did I break? And they'd be like, well, you didn't exactly break an exact rule, but I'm unhappy. It's like, well, you should probably make a rule then for future. If this is a thing that is an expectation of grade four students, you should tell us with words because that's how it works. That's what I was thinking. And that's what I was trying to achieve. I didn't speak to them disrespectfully. I was terrified of adult authority figures, but that's how my brain always worked would be. I don't think I was almost ever spanked when I didn't think it was wrong of them to do it because I didn't break rules. I didn't disobey generally. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. So every time I got spanked, there was just a festering resentment that things were not fair. And, you know, getting excommunicated from my church has, has not a hundred percent cured that situation. John, raised in the extremely isolationist Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, formerly called the Exclusive Brethren with a Big E, while also denying that it had a name, remembers playing with neighborhood kids on bikes was pretty much his only connection to non-Brethren people. We would be playing our bikes outside, we'd go into field buying the house and play football with, with uh, neighbors, when we were young that was. He also saw these kids at school, but was not allowed to even eat lunch with them. Over time, PBCC kids increasingly were discouraged from playing with neighborhood kids at all, and eventually the church opened up its own schools with brethren-only students and regular teachers hired after being carefully instructed in what they were not to mention in class. I read a book recently that was talking about children having less freedom now than they used to have, and I have no idea if you would say that you had any freedom. The sort of freedom he's talking about is when you and I were kids, uh, we, we had a fair bit of freedom to ride our bicycles and go meet our friends. So we'd yes. get on our bicycles and off we'd go and we'd explore nature and that kind of thing. And he was saying that kids aren't allowed to do that anymore. They have to text their mom or, or they're, not, they're not allowed to be away from the parents. But uh, even, even in the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, you probably have fond memories of getting on bikes and going all around. In the, well, yes, uh, to, to 1988. Jonathan Haidt writing the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, points out that this was commonplace with eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and nowadays they would be horrified if a 12-year-old were to go to the park unattended. Uh, pe- people have phoned the police because there's a child in the park without a parent who's 12. Um, it's, America's mm. getting more and more like this. All of this is safety culture. It's, it's bullshit is what it is. Absolute bullshit. And I know, I mean, my kids are outside playing in the yard and they're absolutely safe. And a neighbor goes by and is calling the police. Like, mm-hmm. gr- growing up, my goodness, I grew up on a busy road. We played out on the front yard all day, every day. Nobody would dream of calling CPS or the police on us. We would be out playing and we built snow forts out in the front, uh, on, in our driveway, in the front yard. We built snow forts. We built slides. And nobody would dream of calling them cps because there were children outside playing you saw children outside playing everywhere i see i've only heard that people are sending their 10 year olds to the park and people are phoning the police or children's aid it's, because the child's it's at the park true i didn't know that i would ever talk to somebody who it happened to them it makes me crazy i can't tell you the times that i have had child protective services or the police show up on my doorstep because my children are out playing in the front yard. You did homeschool your kids and 
after the Brooklyn experience, they lived, they grew up on the road, mostly um, in a trailer that would be at their in-laws, at their relatives, in state parks. Um, how many states in America would just say they were in, in this trailer? They went through 44, I believe, 42 or 44, somewhere in there. Everything but the Wyoming, the two Dakotas, and Montana. So that's most of them. The complaint of the coddling of the American mind is that modern children aren't allowed to explore anymore. They're kept at home on their phones all the time, and their parents know where they are all the time. Your kids grew up not just on their phones, all over America, but with the parents still right there all the time, right? So what do you have to say about that? They didn't get as much exploring on their own as I would have hoped. I think when, you know, even in Brooklyn, Douglas went back to visit and and he was like 13 or 14 and Bethany was like you know you take go ahead and take a subway ride by yourself with your friends to go see a movie and some parents are like no you can't do that you know all this here. um but like just a week ago they had all met up at a coffee shop and Finn and Alex and uh, Finn's friend was there and they come up to Bethany and Martha who were talking in the coffee shop and are like can we climb the hill and they're like, well, is there a fence between here and there? No, I don't think so. They're like, yeah, go ahead. Well, then like 45 minutes later, they're ready to go. And they're like, where's the kids? And they go outside and it's not a hill, it's a mountain. And right. the kids are like, <laughs> you can see them like halfway up the mountain. They're on their way back down. But being able to feel that, that kind of trust of your kids that, yeah, they, they can handle themselves when they get in the, caught in a situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it helped a lot to live in Lackawaxa, Pennsylvania, before we went on the trip, because that was an old school community that let the whole strip there along the, the riverbank. It was a summer community. They would come in and they would let their kids roam up and down, ride their bikes for miles if they wanted, you know, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, come back by supper time, kind of. And that's how we grew up. Yeah. And this this is what's being presented by the book. And people have discussed a fair bit about what they think about. Is it really important that this seems to have been lost, that nowadays the kids aren't even leaving the house? They're just on Wi-Fi. Or if they do leave the house, the mother's like texting them every 15 minutes with questions about homework and things. That's not the same. Even married couples. Um, I, I know husbands that there's a real limit to how long they can talk to you before they start getting texts asking why they're not where their wife thinks they were supposed to be. It's usually a 10 minute limit to 15 minutes that they were supposed to have arrived somewhere and they didn't. So there's texts saying, where are you? What's happening? You've deviated from the schedule. <laughs> That's not your marriage, yeah. is it? No, no, the, the whole, this whole constant availability of having a phone on your person is drives me nuts. And I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. Raised in the Children of God cult, Angel notes that not only was she cut off from friends outside the group and pop culture, but this effectively took away all the female role models the other kids looked up to. Role models as trivial-seeming as Princess Leia from Star Wars, Ripley from Alien, Linda Hamilton in the Terminator movies, Jamie Summers, the Bionic Woman, Buffy Summers, the Vampire Slayer, April O'Neil, Friend of Ninja Turtles, Katniss Everdeen, and the female members of the various superhero teams, such as Supergirl, Wonder Woman, Black Widow, Scarlet Witch, and She-Hulk. I had no female role models at all, because all of the women were set up to obey God, mm-hmm. and God was always a man. You know, so it's that whole thing of like, at no point in your life, 
do you not have to answer to a man? So you either have to answer to your father or you have to answer to your husband or you have to answer to God. So it sets up that whole dynamic as well of just always having to ask permission for your life from a man. I have a song, um, much worse for women, but the song, even me, a guy writing this, felt Mm -hmm. very much that I was in my 20s and I hadn't married. And as long as I was in my 20s and hadn't married, I was treated as not yet an adult. Oh, totally. Yeah, less valuable. You're 24 and you start seeing things or wanting to do things. And when you start speaking, people dismiss it as, well, you don't know. You don't have a family. You're not old enough. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure that worse for women and also pretty much anyone who's not middle-aged seemed to get that. So they would encourage us to have kids as soon as we were allowed to have sex. First of all, they were abusing all the children, but they did release something called the charter. And according to the charter, you were not allowed to have sex until you were 16. But then they would encourage you to get pregnant as soon as possible. So I remember being like 21 and not having a child. And people would be like, what's wrong with you? And I remember being younger, like when I was like 15 and I had a friend who was 19 and she didn't have any kids. And I was just like, there must be something horribly wrong with her. And I don't want to be like her because she's 19 which means she's been having sex, like she's been able to have sex now for like three years and she's still not pregnant. And it was just like, you didn't have value unless you had a kid, because obviously when you start having children, you're more solidified, you're more committed to the group or to the environment that you're in. And then we would get a day off, like as singles, we would get one day off. Parents would get two days off. And so they would try and incentivize you to have kids. Like if you have, if you have a kid, you can have a a family day and a free day, but if you're single, then you have to take care of the kids. So the parents can have a day off and you only get one day off a week. And like your, your spare time should be spent taking care of other kids Mm -hmm. because what are you going to do anyway? Like you're just a single. So, you know, it's a very pathetic life to live unless you have children. Culture matters. Community matters. Growing up as cut off from the other children living around you as our church could manage, not being able to talk to them about what was to become Gen X culture, the music, the movies, the television, the sports, the events, any of that meant we couldn't talk to them at all much, couldn't go anywhere with them or be there as their adolescent milestones were reached. It stranded us in the church social setting the more our parents ensured we were cut off from anything else. That cutting us off from the rest of the kids in our town was, in fact, the main point of church, youth group activities, and all the rest of it. At time of recording this, teenagers are starting to be able to once again hang out in restaurants and shopping malls, go to see movies, go to dances, go to live music and sports in some parts of the world. And not having that for a year or two during COVID, during extremely key years in their development, it hurt their development, left them a little bit behind. They missed out on something on something related to life and life stuff, on the very same stuff a lot of us church kids did, only we had it year in, year out. At least they have the internet and chats with their friends online. Many of us were left alone in our rooms with our Bibles. Some indigenous children went to residential schools not terribly far from their parents, were fed relatively well, had some teachers who were kind, were not sexually molested, learned a few useful things, and managed to succeed in the adult world. Others had it much worse, and some died. We found what may in time very well turn out to be graves. You weren't supposed to talk about it when it was going on, but that's how bad it sometimes got. 
not for everyone, but for too, too many children. Not all Christian groups are the same in terms of strictness. Neither are Christian families. In what we would tactfully call high-demand groups like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Orthodox Judaism, Amish, strict fundamentalist evangelicalism, and Catholicism, there is a range of experiences, too. You can talk to the adults who lived it. Most kids don't die, of course. Some kids had loving parents and formed and maintained healthy connections to friends, relatives, and eventually co-workers, even if they were outside that insular church group that tried to cut the kids off from everyone and everything outside it. Others didn't. Child molestation and other forms of child abuse, neglect, substance abuse, and suicide are a sad part of things inside high-demand groups like ours. You aren't supposed to talk about that either, ever. And it's still very much going on right now, today. When a man will take away your control over so many private aspects of your life, is it any surprise some of them go that one extra step and intrude on your body and use it for their own purposes? We couldn't believe it back in the day, but some churches went out of their way to provide an alternative culture for the youth so they'd have a church culture. Rap music, but with Christian lyrics. Church videos and concerts and shows. They had big events where various denominations would all work together to have a festival or show or summer camp or convention. If their non-Christian peers at school listened to Run DMC or wore Judas Priest or Brian Adams t-shirts or talked about going to the Lollapalooza Music Festival, they had their own Christian stuff to fill that cultural gap. They might have DC Talk, Amy Grant, or the Newsboys in their Sony Walkmans, wear Striper or Petra t-shirts, and look forward to going to giant Christian music festivals. But some churches like ours were almost entirely defined solely by that performance of ritualistic separating from the world and what would otherwise have been our culture and community. We didn't replace it with sanitized Jesus-up substitutes, Parents just cut their kids off more and more from more and more of it without providing anything to replace it. That leaves a hole. It starves your heart. It stunts your emotional development. It gives you an odd relationship with pleasure and fun. It makes you meet them with a reflexive fear and suspicion response where a curiosity joy response would otherwise have developed normally. Our church cut us off just as cleanly from all the local Christian groups and the things that were going on in the local Christian community as they did with the regular non-Christian stuff. That modern Christian stuff wasn't Victorian, so it seemed modern and worldly to many. Too fun to be edifying and healthy. When we scheduled time at Red Pine Christian Camp, we booked a special week at the end of the season when only our members would be there instead of meeting and interacting with people from various different Christian churches. The camp staff, who normally split their efforts between cleanup work and preaching and teaching duties, all stood around mutely and threw away our trash while we sang our old hymns, and our own preachers, who we'd brought along, preached to us instead of them. The Red Pine staff weren't allowed to say a word. I was amazed one time to be standing next to a garbage can, starting up a conversation with the guy emptying it, and finding he was a church pastor with a great deal of Bible knowledge. Also, I knew that the Brethren Week at Red Pine Camp was almost entirely about the more liberal in our not-at-all-liberal group. Attending it was a bit of a politically charged thing. The really serious folks in our church didn't go at all. I showed up to see what was going on during the day a few times, but didn't actually stay there overnight. Looking on, thinking my thoughts, not belonging, not choosing a side, not having a side, as per usual. As well, 
Many of us had parents who thought the other Brethren Church parents didn't cut their kids off from this dangerous dark world nearly enough. Too many worldly friends, too much time spent with them, too connected to other Christian groups with their new ideas, a family TV set, rumors they'd gone to an NHL game one time and been seen cheering on TV. And so naturally, many of our parents cut us off more and more from other families in our own already isolated, insulated Brethren group too. The crack that soon turned into a gaping chasm between two sides of a church split was already visible in my teenage years, cutting my side off even more from what passed for the fun side in our church. I wasn't at first allowed to attend any of our church youth group activities because my father worried the men teaching it might teach modern, untraditional stuff and use modern, untraditional translations and maybe even pray without using thee and thou. And I wasn't allowed to accept rides to and from these events with various teens with wild reputations of possibly having been caught drinking beer one time or who were thought to possibly blast ACDC or Def Leppard in their cars on the way, or even if it was their older brother who fairly or unfairly had that reputation, or their father had been a bit rowdy back in the day. So teenagers like me grew up isolated from our neighbors and peers at school in a church where we were isolated from not only all the other Christians in town, but even the more liberal teens in our own group. And the more people you cut out of your kids' lives, the more pressure is on you and your kids to damn well be stricter than those people you've cut out of it, to live a life that can be clearly seen to be more sterile, empty, and alone than theirs, more silent, colorless, and dead. It is a contest, and these lifestyles tend to escalate. You have to do more and more, or should I say, less and less, to give the correct performance of Christian devotion as a family. Every month, new limits arise. At the height of this in my family, and as the church division and my adulthood loomed, I stayed more and more in my room and wouldn't come out, and thought about how I could possibly escape the obligation of living like that a single day more. There didn't seem to be any point at all. More on that later. In our group, like any other, mileage varied. It really helped if your family had money. Ian's family had a pool table in their basement and an Intellivision video game system, too. Lisa's family had a swimming pool and a trampoline. Jeff's family had a cottage on a lake where they spent their summers water skiing and wakeboarding and so on, with people their age over all the time to do likewise. David's family went skiing in Whistler and sometimes Banff in the winter, with trips to Florida, to Disneyland, and places like that some summers. It also helped if you were good at, if you were into, sports. Will played football for the school team, and his folks let him play away games too, and even go to football camp overnight. Tim and I both played in the high school band, but his family allowed him to go on band trips and to band camp, while mine didn't. Tim's family also participated in music student exchanges, allowing a worldly person from Alberta to stay at their home one time and bringing him out to the breaking of bread Sunday morning and everything. It was weird. Most Brethren kids' parents weren't teachers, so this meant that parents sometimes were working evenings and certainly away from the house during most school holidays. For those other kids, summer and Christmas and spring break meant a break from adults, from teachers and from parents alike. For homeschooled or teachers' kids and ones with housewife moms, summer and holidays meant that pretty much every moment we were at home instead of at school, both parents were there with us too, watching every minute of every day. And mine were of the opinion that summer holidays were a time when kids ought to learn how to work. Doing hay, picking rocks, gardening, cleaning the chicken coop, slaughtering and cleaning the chickens, cutting, splitting, piling and carrying firewood, stuff like that. 
For any kids whose dad's job was farming, right where the family lived, this is what happened. There was no biking across town to see what the other kids were doing. You didn't live in town. There was no leaving the property much of the time, as there was work to do there. So for me, every moment I wasn't at school was a head-to-head battle with my dad over me not being a typical outdoors, working with tools kind of guy, and being the sort of guy who said and thought all manner of upsetting and startling unexpected things, and who liked things like stories and music and art that normal guys didn't like. My cousin and his dad could bond in a Christian way over dumping a bag of kittens into a field and blowing them all away with a shotgun as they fled. They'd found a way in which they were alike. My dad and I never found any point of connection at all, except maybe that we didn't like being cruel to animals. Some rural kids formed warm, healthy relationships with their parents and relatives, of course, working side by side with them as a family unit and reaping the benefits of it, perhaps even inheriting land or equipment or sharing in profits. Some of us, though, managed to keep the whole chain gang prisoners and wardens vibe going throughout childhood, reaping only resentment on both sides. Not all of us saw getting the dock at the cottage ready for a summer of water skiing as the start of our summer routine. The summer schedule for some of us was up early doing hay or similar for most of the day and then going to church in the evening to listen to old men pray for those on beds of affliction. The best thing about Sunday was pretty much all outside work was forbidden. Play or recreation of any kind too, but at least on a hot day in August you could stay in the house and read the Bible. Having out-of-town cousins over visiting was life-changing. It meant having people around your age to hang out with rather than all of the solitude and being put to work by adults. The song this episode revolves around was mainly written to talk about being in one's mid-twenties in my church and being treated like a child with no life experience and no ability to have opinions or disagree with anyone. More on that later in the episode. When I slapped this thing together now a teacher and an uncle and so on, and plenty old enough to rant about what I think is wrong with how parents of my generation raise their kids these days before sending them into my classroom, I added a second component. Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote a book a few years back called The Coddling of the American Mind, which I found disappointing to read because it was like, yeah, mm-hmm, yep. I'm a bit of a decades-long expert in what teenagers can't do if their parents aren't around with jumper cables connecting the child's prefrontal cortexes to the parents. But one of Haydn Lukianoff's central points is simply that kids need to be allowed to go exploring and riding bikes and otherwise getting out from the watchful eyes and nagging texts of their parents, or they don't develop normally. Haidt's talks involve him asking people of Boomer, Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z ages to call out how old they were before their parents let them walk and bike around the neighborhood unsupervised. With my generation, it was typically age 6 or 7, depending on where you live, with millennials tending more toward 9 or 10, and Gen Z being first allowed to explore maybe age 10 or 12, and then often with continual phone contact to supervise them. Here's Height on Bill Maher explaining some of the thinking, which I then asked my listeners about. But kids born around 1995 had a very different childhood from kids born a few years before. Um, and so research by Gene Twenge and others show that kids born after 1985, they don't get driver's licenses as much. They don't drink as much. They don't go out on dates. They don't have sex as much. What are they doing? They're sitting at home on their devices talking with each other. And this seems to be changing social development. And we know this. This is not just some, you know, perception from outsiders, because the rates of anxiety disorders, uh, depression, 
self-cutting, where they, they have to be admitted to hospitals, um, and suicide. All of these rates are way, way up, especially for girls, and it all begins right around 2011. And so it's when this generation first enters college campuses in 2013, that's when all the, this new attitude about speech comes in. Isn't another reason that they're sitting home instead of doing all those fun things is because the parents insist on watching them all the time. Exactly. The main break from my parents was getting on my bike, going across the road to Curry's house where there was TV and a mom smoking, swearing, and drinking alcohol, but with a friendly cooperation with my parents that she would certainly not be letting me do any of that except a very moderate amount of brief TV watching with the assumption that it not interfere with Curry's mom's own TV watching on the single TV, his little brother Doug's children's TV watching, nor contain anything much that my parents might object to, nor was I to be over there primarily to watch TV. In fact, what I was supposed to be doing, Curry and I mainly did. We rode our bikes on the farm side roads from about age eight, shot BB guns and slingshots and bows and arrows, threw pebbles into the creek, threw hunting knives at trees and fence posts, fished and generally ran around outside. To my dad, this was proper stuff for a young lad to do. Unfortunate that I chose to do it with someone who wasn't from the meeting. John Blackstar, astronaut. is swept through a black hole into an ancient alien universe. When I was little, I'd catch a surreptitious episode of Black Star or the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon if I was at Curry's on a Saturday morning, which I usually wasn't. I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. And as I got a bit older and might be over in the evening, Bits of episodes of Simon and Simon, Magnum P.I., Airwolf, or The Equalizer. It was at Curry's house with cable TV on Much Music, Canada's version of MTV, that I first saw Jay Semko and the Northern Pikes being interviewed about their songs about growing up as unhappy, awkward teenagers in the chilly, empty stillness of Canada. Well, that song was sort of based on looking back at teenage years and also feeling, I think, what a lot of kids feel now. And by kids, I mean ourselves as kids. I think it's just a song written from frustration and from the fact that most people are normal and they're not exceptional. And I think that sort of sums it up. Hello, citizens. I'm Aaron, And this is the best thing your TV set's ever seen. Much music. Whatever I was listening to, saying, watching, or doing, Curry's mom was nearby in communication with my mom, and mom and dad were right across the road and able to see us playing outside. Curry's grandpa lived next to him, and if we did anything he didn't like, he might speak to us or to Curry's mom or my parents. My parents didn't like me playing at houses unless they were across the road or belonged to my cousins or the better behaved of the brethren kids with a mom every bit as watchful as mine right there who was likely to tell not only my parents but the other parents in the entire church anything I did that was bad. In a fit of silliness, I remember once covering the N on the Raisin Bran box with my hand as a child so it said Raisin Bra. And I was spoken to immediately by my aunt for my silliness and lack of decorum. Joking about bras was over the line. Just imagine. And one time, I convinced a brethren kid we should use their sports-only hidden basement television to check out the A-Team. I'm going to forge new and wondrous things upside your head if you try to get me on the airplane. I remember his parents comparing us to Adam and Eve in the garden, standing before the Almighty after having caused the fall of mankind when we both got caught doing that. 
Here are Curry's own memories of us running around being dangerous little boys in the woods. And I can tell you, when you're a little boy who gets bullied a lot for being small and yelled at a lot by a scary dad, along with feeling like you are useless, there's nothing more invigorating than realizing and experiencing the fact that as an intelligent, social, tool-using mammalian biped, you are dangerous and armed and occasionally useful. Yeah, that When we were kids, we didn't wear bike helmets and we drank from the hose and all that lawn darts, all the stuff. And yeah. so lawn one darts. of lawn darts. <laughs> we had the side road that we would go up and that, I remember being young enough to going up there. I don't remember what age, but that it was, that was an adventure to go up the side road. Mm -hmm. And then there was the side road that connected the golf club road and they did be able to do the horseshoe. And then there was that old house that you could kind of go explore. Yeah. And then beyond that, there was some weird stuff. Like you kind of go up the big hill and then there was the, like, you know, Mr. Kinsman lived back there. And then there was yeah. this other weird house that we always avoided because the guy was a weirdo. And there was some fields that you could kind of, um, but I remember like just the sense of adventure as a young kid, yeah. like being able to go. And then there was the creek and we would kind of go down and walk up through the creek and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like just this incredible sense of adventure and like, you know, and the, but the, the bicycle was a big part of it. it and yeah, now to think it, yeah, your parents would never have a clue where you're at. No. They wouldn't be able to call you. You just get in your bikes and go. And I, you know, and it was totally normal. You just all get in your bikes and go or, and you go for miles right, in all sorts of different places. Now, were we ever that far from home? Probably not. No. I mean, I'm sure if we were going to bike the side road today, it would feel like ridiculously short. But as a kid, it felt like a long damn way. And, and, we, and we, we didn't have helmets on and sometimes we had no, sling, there was, slingshots or hunting knives or BB guns or whatever. Fishing well, rods. not sometimes. Usually I would say in my case, <laughs> yes. right? We, if we, we had, we had those types of things and yeah. we would shoot birds and frogs and it, and, that, and it was just part of being a kid in the eighties in Eastern Ontario. Yeah. Um, and it was just, yeah. I mean, I, again, uh, nostalgia too, this is two old guys talking, you're being nostalgic, but I honestly think it's a, I think you don't appreciate when and where you live, mm -hmm. but I think, we lived in a cool time and got to grow up in a cool place. Yeah. The countryside outside Smith Falls is beautiful. And I think it's, it was a cool place to grow up. The time that we grew up in was a cool time. I, I think that, you know, I mean, cell phones have dramatically changed society, obviously. Social media has dramatically changed society, the 24-hour news cycle. But we were before even that was even a concept. Like we're talking about we grew up in a time where, you know, if a person didn't answer the phone when you called their house, you had no way of knowing where they are. And, you know, you would not be able to talk. To I remember the first people getting answering machines, and that was yeah. a big deal. You remember party right? lines? Like, party lines, totally. Yeah. But I, I totally remember, like, the only way to get a hold of someone if they weren't home is, yeah. you know, you, you, if their car wasn't in the driveway, you had no idea where they were. And and I think that's probably a good thing. So, yeah, uh, I, I think that it was a really cool place and a cool time to go up. Lot There was a lot of adventure I think we probably took it for granted. And, you know, now I don't know if kids that live in that area grew up the same way we did. I suspect not until I went back as an adult and looked at it through the lens of a man that has to earn his own money, has his own things and stuff. I didn't realize how beautiful the Rio lakes are, yeah. how beautiful the area is. You take it for granted when you grow up and you don't get it. Mm -hmm. But when I go back there now, it's a beautiful area. You know, it was an interesting period in history, obviously, you know, through the early 80s. Like any older person, I'm very nostalgic about those that era. And I think it was a better time to be a kid, quite frankly. I still yeah. think that. I actually genuinely think it was a better time to be a kid. There's um, a whole song about that you can talk about in a minute. All right. <laughs> it's coming. And I'd like, to talk, I'd like to talk about that. When I was growing up, I have vivid, vivid memories 
of just getting on my bicycle. I must have been eight, nine, 10, whatever. I'm just riding around the neighborhood and exploring, like really exploring the neighborhood. I have vivid memories of that. And I would just like see another kid out playing and I just randomly go over and start playing with him. And I can remember just going for walks and just like, so I grew up in a city, a, a small city, but a city. And I've always been a country girl at heart. I've always needed um, to be close to woods and fields and bodies of water in order to feel like I can breathe. I don't feel like I can breathe when I'm all crammed in with other houses. So what I would do when I had those, those hours of freedom is I would take and I would look for the fields, the woods, the creek in the northern part of the city where I lived, where city became country, that was absolutely magical to me. And this is before we had cell phones. So I would be away for hours at a time. And my mom would never have any idea where I was. And I would just show up after being out and adventuring for hours. I'm like, oh, hi. You know, it was, it was fine. I never had to give any account of where, where I had been and what I had done. Exploration, very much about exploration. I was very much about exploring the streets of my neighborhood it's very much about exploring the fields gathering the flowers and the seasons I was very much about exploring the trails the woods that I discovered when I was 12 13 years old they were so wild and so remote and there were like no walking trails or no paths it was just like all unspoiled woods how old were you when you started learning what all the different flowers and stuff were called when did that start Oh, I was a kid. I was pretty, I was pretty young when I started learning the names of different flowers. My grandmother had a flower book and she used to teach me these, these woods that when I was growing up were so unspoiled and they were wild and you, you didn't know where you were. Now, all of these trails, they are clearly marked. The Boy Scouts have had a project where they've taken and put, you know, wooden planks down over the more wet areas. Every trail is clearly marked. And every trail has like the tag that you can scan with your cell phone so that you know exactly where you are at every given time and something is lost. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like exploration. It's not exploration. It sounds like you're having nature spoon fed to you. Yeah, it sounds it sounds it's, like it's uh, scro- scrolling through a web page or something. Yeah, you're not connected to to the woods at all. You're not having to find your own way in, your own way out of the woods. I remember more than once being lost and not knowing how to find my way back. And I just looked for landmarks. I just looked around and I was able to intuit my my way out because I felt connected with the woods. Weirdly, it reminds me of the change in Lego. Oh, that's an interesting connection. My boys are big time into Lego. Like, Do you remember when you'd buy a set of Lego that the idea was you could make almost anything out of it? And, then and we did. Growing up, we did. And at some point, you buy the kit, and it's basically a model that doesn't need glue, that you're right. making the one thing. Right. And there's, there's not even two or three things. You're making a TIE fighter from Star Wars, and that's all that right. it, you're supposed to make. And I'm sure it's really fun to make it wrong or do it backwards or whatever, but mm-hmm. again, that's not the same. There's the, that lack of exploration Something of freedom. lost. Tim had the opposite upbringing to mine. No adults were paying much attention to what he did during the day. Like me, he may have been forbidden a lot of things, but unlike me, his parents and their agents weren't at his elbow 24-7 to see whether he was actually pursuing those forbidden things or not. I remember, dude, I remember when I was 12 years old, I got a job working for this farmer, and I made 50 bucks 
in a week. Mm-hmm. And I remember going home and, and, and I actually went and started a, a savings account. I remember going home and telling my mom, I put 50 bucks in it. But for a 12-year-old, I did that on my own, you know. And she was like, well, that's really good. And that was the extent of my financial advising for my whole from growing up pretty much. Wow, that's pretty good. You know what I did? Next day, I went and took it out and spent it. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and I, what? I mean, you do, dude, that, I've had financial, I'm doing okay today, but it's been a fight. She never pushed me to go into college or anything like that. I and mean, I ended up joining the military because I just didn't have anything better. To do, you know, and uh, I can't, I don't want to blame her. I don't feel like I'm a victim per se. I try to think of myself more as a survivor, you know, uh, but uh Growing up in that family, a lot of times I felt like a piece of furniture. You know? Yeah. I, I believe my mom loved me, but she was so broken, dude. She had so many issues. And today, I mean, she's, uh, you know, in the 70s. And I love my mom dearly. She's, I mean, I love her. She's always been in my corner. Now that I maybe have gone through deconstruction and stuff, I mean, my mom is very, uh, well, I, I mean, we're all pretty self-centered, you know, but I, I think sometimes she tends to think everything kind of revolves around what's going on in her brain and her, her and her relationship with God, you know. Uh, Natalie, who grew up in the Mormon church, has read Haidt and Lukianoff's book. Yeah, this free-range parenting is apparently controversial now. But when I was eight, my mom's like, hey, I got you a paper route. It's on the mm-hmm. other side of town, you know. So I was biking yeah. all around my small town at eight years old. I walked to kindergarten. And it was a mile from the middle of Smith Falls wow. through the poor neighborhood. <laughs> and we, we don't, we didn't think anything much of that. No, no, it's, it's definitely a major shift from when I was a kid to now. Do you think it's having an effect on the kids autonomy and ability to cope? Yes. Yes, I do. When I was eight years old, I was all over the place. I was in the forest. I was exploring in the creeks, you know, I was just getting dirty all the time. And, um, Maybe it's not because that we're not allowing our kids to do that, but they have other distractions so that they're not bored enough to go right. on adventures anymore. That makes sense. I saw kind of a creepy um, bit of research that someone's doing right now in Ottawa. Uh, he's basically suggesting that because of phones, in many ways, kids have never been more socially separate from their family and mm. other relatives. And they've never been more creepily in real time, constantly connected to a whole bunch of people their age. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of this weird electronic web of shared consciousness. Yeah. And meanwhile, they, they don't have those connections, their aunts and uncles and grandpas and stuff that we needed because we didn't have phones. Right. No, I agree with that. I mean, my son, he comes home from school where he's been with his friends all day to get on a computer to be with his friends all night. Mm-hmm. It, and and no matter how hard I push, nothing comes from the other side anyway. But it's like invite your friends to meet you in town. Go to the skate park. Mm-hmm. Here's some money. Go to the store. Bike. Ask your friends to meet you there. Nobody's going outside on their bikes. Apparently, that's the generation is that increasingly they do everything online and not yeah. in person. Yeah. I never thought I would hear them say that. There's never been a generation that's less sexually active in yeah. recent memory because they're just on phones. Yeah, they're not getting up to no good. <laughs> not, they're not drinking as much, not doing any yeah. of the things because there's no more physical. It's all virtual. Yeah. That's troubling in a weird way. 
Well, in the, one of the latest Joe Rogans, he was speaking to a psychologist, I don't remember what she was, but she was talking about that, how they don't have these true moments of boredom anymore. They're mm-hmm. always at this state of having something to consume their attention so that they, they don't explore then as much as before these screens were available to us. People my age because... are shocked to hear that kids respond to videos and movies the way we responded to Shakespeare, maybe. Hmm. As that they, they don't have the attention span to watch a movie. So when you put the movie on, they're very quickly tuning out and sneakily on their phones and that kind Looking of thing. Looking for their phone, yeah. It's like a reflex. Because they're not used to watching things that are that long. Like I had kids who were dropping Monty Python quotes all the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, these guys are Monty Python fans. And they were saying all this stuff from the Holy Grail. It turned out that virtually none of them watched it from start to finish. They were on YouTube looking at clips of just the best clips. bits. Yeah, and that's it. Hmm. And that's it, right? It's just what's the sound bite? What's the punchline? Mm-hmm. Not what's the entire story. I taught my class what autonomy meant the other day because they're 17. And, uh, and I basically defined for them autonomy is how soon do you need help? Hmm. And I was talking about ed jobs, co-op placements, um, university and college. Um, the most successful people aren't the people who need help first. Right. And everybody needs help sometime. But if you always need help all the time, that's not really okay for adults. No, right. Johan agrees that things are different for kids today. Modern kids today absolutely have less freedom um, than their counterparts from even 20 years ago, let alone 30 or 40. Um, That being said, I really, really strongly think that there's a bit of a survival bias here, or sorry, survivor bias here when we talk about, um, you know, I did this in in my day and I did fine. Well, you know what? Yeah, maybe you did. And that's great. But um, there are a lot of people that got, like, if you look at the the numbers, um, physically kids are a lot safer now, you know, um, I remember uh, long car trips, sleeping on a mattress in the in the back of my grandfather's station wagon. And yeah, I was fine. But you know what? Lots of kids weren't. Lots of kids went right through the windshield and died. And those deaths don't happen anymore. Um, so yeah, I think absolutely it's it's safer to be a kid physically nowadays. And, and that came at a cost of some freedom, absolutely. Uh, the, a, a big one for me that I feel really acutely is I grew up in a in a suburb until I was ten, and now I'm raising my kids in a suburb. And when I was when I was a kid, um, I could I had quite a lot of freedom. You know, I had I wasn't allowed to cross the highway. I couldn't go uh, onto private property. I, I I was allowed to go down certain streets, but not other streets. But I still I could go like a long way. I could be gone all day on my bike as an eight year old with my friends, and that was fine. I was okay. Um, nowadays, like if I'm at the park with with my kid, who's almost seven, and she falls, you know, four feet off of the play structure, and I don't run over there immediately, um, I get dirty looks from everyone. Like, um, you really have to be on kids, and and a lot of the activities are so structured now that you're constantly going everywhere with them. Um, 
So yeah, so I absolutely was sort I had free reign in the neighborhood. And you still see that. You see that in in communities like mine. We specifically pick the street that we live on because we saw lots of kids, lots of young families, and there are quite a lot of kids in the neighborhood who are kind of I call them feral kids. You know, they're just loose and uh you you can see the dads, usually the dads um are out walking around dinner time trying to track them down, hunt them down, get them back into the house. Um, and that's weirdly kind of nice, actually. Um, it's nice to see because it's more like what I grew up with. But I would say that's the exception, not the norm these days, for sure. There's an age difference between me and my husband. I don't know if that makes the difference. He's more of the, I'm going to call it helicopter parenting, but he's certainly more concerned with what the kids are up to and if it's dangerous or not and if they're going to mm-hmm. get up to no good. I am more like, they're good. They're in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Let them get on their bikes. Let them explore. I did a lot of that when I was a kid. He did too, but he got into trouble with it. That's why I think maybe he's worried. Do you have any answers to like all the Jonathan Hyde stuff? Is there anything you do in raising them that? No, because despite what he says and me agreeing, it's still really hard. It's hard to fight all of these things because they are convenient and they are everywhere. Culture is a real thing. Yeah, I guess so. So, I mean, they took away the TV and I couldn't understand what all my friends at school were talking about. So they were mm. ranting and raving about the Dukes of Hazard, Knight Rider, or the A-Team, which tells you how old I am. And I didn't have any idea who any of these people were. And they would explain to me and I would imagine in my head, and it was quite something years later to watch the show and see what they were talking about and how wrong wow. what I was imagining was. Right. And it makes me think if I had my own kids and I did something like saying, like, you can't have a cell phone until you're 14 or yeah. you you can't have Wi-Fi after six or the, the sorts yeah. of crazy things that would occur to me. Yeah. I would essentially be cutting them off entirely from their own generation. Yes, but that's not a good enough reason all the time to not do it. <laughs> I still don't know what I would do. Like we're we cut off the internet at nine. Really? And I just try to put in a lot of the things that I enjoyed as a kid too, right? So okay, you're gonna watch something, we'll watch this old movie with me. The kids in my class, you know what one of their what what seems to be all of their favorite wind down just relax activity? I don't know. Scrabble. Really? You wouldn't think like you just wouldn't think, but like the the kids who are least into school that you could imagine, you know, I think and and to be honest, when when we were all locked down and we're at home and we didn't see human beings or anything, I thought as soon as I get back in the class, we're going to start playing like board games and stuff. Mm, mm-hmm. And they're on their phones and everything, of course, but there's something about they're sort of sitting elbow to elbow and they're yeah. sharing the tiles and putting them on the board. There's something that they've been missing that I think Scrabble and similar like Boggle. Who would have predicted yeah. that kids would get aggressively competitive about Boggle? Oh, Boggle's amazing. I don't think they're trying to beat each other so much as it's a whole play, yeah. a playing with the words, making each other laugh with funny words or rude words right. or personal insults or whatever. Yeah, and, but it's a social thing with words, and I can't argue with That's that. That's right. No, it's the social part too, especially. Cheryl, who's been associated with various doomsday cults, has thoughts on the matter, and so his theory is that we're doing that, and that people are not developing autonomy or the ability to negotiate social problems without pulling adults in. What you're describing is my children's childhood. Um, 
and how I was like him and what he said, especially because I had no parents. I made the rules. I came home when I wanted. I left when I wanted. I wandered in the desert, encountered incredibly difficult things. Sometimes the police had to be involved. I remember once uh, someone had to go get stitches because we threw a rock. I mean, things happened. Um, And something really, really horrible could have happened to us, but it didn't. I didn't experience anything super horrible in my eyes, but I knew of other people who did. So fast forward, I'm a mom with, and, and the generation that he is addressing that is afraid of everything. And I lived in a city that's called Thousand Oaks. It's a suburb of Los Angeles. That's where my children were raised. It is paradise there. It is mostly Christian. It is beautiful. The weather is incredible. Most people there have money because you don't move there unless you have money. It was an idyllic setting to raise children. But you're, what he says is absolutely right. My children, even though it wasn't my intention to do that, all the other parents required that. So no one could go into a public restroom alone. No one could do anything alone. Um, I had parents calling me, aren't you afraid that someone's going to rape them in the bathroom? And go, I'm sorry, I don't think of things like that. Um, and so my children both very, very hurt from growing up in an idyllic, perfect little world bubble. And it began falling apart when they became the age of reason, I guess you would say, 12, 13, 14, when they began to see the conflict and to see the problems. And, and they were actually a mess for a decade. And just for the record, like I did some stupid stuff. We used to go down to, we'd bike down to the RV dealership and we would climb up on top of the RVs um, and uh, pretend that we were driving around and, and we used to play in the quarry. And, and I remember smashing my bike up very badly going, you know, falling into this deep pit and um we absolutely had a lot of close calls i did a lot of things that i would never want my kids to do um and i think that taking risks is really important it's an important part of being a kid it's how we learn um and uh and i get that but i also think that as parents we have a responsibility to make sure that those risks can be taken in a safe way so i i don't love the idea of my kid playing in a quarry but I'm happy to take her to to try the, you know, the the ninja course at uh, at the local trampoline park, which is still risky, still scary, still dangerous, but in a more slightly more controlled and safer way. Ben points out that keeping your kids still and quiet in old school Victorian brethren church services was a matter of keeping or losing status there. Your children being quiet in a pew is a sign of a good parent. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a child that's being unruly it means they're probably bad parents these external indications that are completely judged and looked down upon making that person making that single mom single father totally uncomfortable or whatever the situation is because they're just instantly judged for what from an outside behavioral change so yeah i guess the general word changing behavior not hearts Michael was one of those young people who, unlike me, who hated kids, entertained himself at meeting and Bible conferences from a very young age by clowning around, roughhousing, and generally entertaining and riling up other people's kids. 
The kids, those people, were trying to ensure strode around the Bible conference in quiet, solemn reverence all day. I knew many girls and guys who, when bored out of their trees, would go connect with the even more bored little kids who were desperate for distraction. Some young teens like kids and for no creepy reason. I, that was a challenge to figure out ways that you could still be free and not get labeled as somebody that you know was going off the rails. Or I, I was big on finding any way I could break through. And, and one way that I used to do it was like you described in one of your podcasts of, of the first time you saw me was with a kid on my shoulders. Um, I would go to the kids, the children, and I would um, talk to them a little bit. And then I would grab them and pick them up and put them on my shoulders. And I would run around. And at first they would scream and then they would be delighted. And then their parents would freak out because their kids were having way too much fun. And I, they were obviously hurting me. And they would, they would blame the kids and they would yell at the kids. And so I would get away with as much of that I possibly can. Usually I try to get the kids away from the parents and go and have a great time. How old were you when you started doing that kind of thing? Oh, like probably 12, 13, you know, with the, with the five-year-olds. And as I got older, I, I would carry them up to about 12 years old. There's a bunch of opinionated people online suggesting that modern children lack what they call rough and tumble play and that it's absolutely essential and it's a non-romantic non-sexual way for young human beings to express delight and and joy in each other and each other's company yeah my christian turned atheist homeschooling neighbor emily had a few things to say is that something mm -hmm. that you're familiar with too did, did a lot of people sort of believe that that you needed to physically punish your children and need to break their spirits so they could learn to be obedient was that something that was in your culture too yeah. And, you know, it's so funny when you put it that way, because it really sounds like treating children like animals, you know, break their spirit. It sounds like you're talking about a cult, not a human being. Mm -hmm. Yes. Corporal punishment was definitely practiced in our circle. Um, I think my family, fortunately, was on the much lighter end of that. Um, my parents were not big fans. It was administered because that was the way it was done, but they were not as, uh, as liberal with it as many other families. God doesn't punish us. He proves us. He chases us. He lets things happen, but he's not out to get us. Let's reality touch us a bit. Let's consequences happen because of causes. I'll say that again. Um, I think um, I'm watching a Netflix show called Midnight Mass, and I just saw a scene where a guy who was an alcoholic and, and uh, was a drunk driver and killed a girl he doesn't believe in God anymore, although he used to be a Catholic. He's explaining to a priest who's trying to justify, you know, the existence of God. And his complaint against God is that God lets our actions have the consequences instead of taking away the consequences. So in his case, he drives drunk and a girl dies. And he can't forgive God because God let his choice have the predicted outcome. Yes, I so, agree with that. Because you're saying that God doesn't, necessarily punish us and i'm saying it doesn't necessarily have to i mean there's uh, there's a whole lot of if there's no if, if there's no god this is explicable whether you're an atheist or not if there's no god you do something stupid something bad happens um if you're a believer in god and you do something bad and bad something bad happens um and then you're angry with god because god let cause and effect happen that seems pretty dumb it does it seems to be pretty blind to actually walking around in a physical world. I learned that systems 
use force to force compliance and force predictability. And that the most annoying thing you can do to a system is to do something they didn't plan for or something they didn't expect or weren't thinking of, because now there's no rules to cover it. And they want to punish you as if you broke the rule just because they didn't think anyone would think or say or want whatever. What's your plan that originally it's like, no, you can't run into the busy street, you'll die. And then you have to at some point transition to you can get a driver's license and drive without even telling me where you're going. How do you envision that transfer of power happening? Well, I think it has to be gradual because, I mean, when you're three years old, you don't understand the risks of cars on the road, for example. The road is this nice big stretch of pavement that it looks like a great place to run. Mm -hmm. And there's no understanding that, you know, what else goes really fast on the road, not just kids running, but cars and you can get smoked. Mm -hmm. So as the maturity of the individual builds, then more responsibility can be given. And I think that's different than just exerting power. You know, you can definitely be in circumstances where you've got a um, domineering parent or church leader or boss or whatever it is, and they just get off on exerting power Mm -hmm. over people and their rules are arbitrary. Who knows why they're doing it? They just get off on being in charge and making other people feel like crap. So that is one thing. And then the whole, you know, gradually building somebody's knowledge and confidence and maturity before they can take on those additional responsibilities. That's a whole other game. I indulge a rant to Curry, explaining what teacher training leads teachers into in terms of educating kids. When I went to teacher's college, they basically told us anything that created you, anything that teachers did to educate you is wrong. And you are not an experienced teacher like they were, but any random idea that you have is going to be awesome. So if it's new, do it. If it's old, it's wrong. Stop doing it. And so you won't be the least bit surprised to hear that I bought into all the teachers college crap at about age 30 that they told us all this stuff that was very modern. And then of course I tried it. And the first problem is that it doesn't work. But the second problem is the kids hate it. And the kids don't want it anyway. So some of my stuff is new, but most of my stuff is what worked with me that I can do. Not like I can't be Mrs. Fitchell. So not everything that teachers did, I can do it because I'm a different person. But this idea that just because it's old and and that that continues to this day, um, there are principles that basically they look at your stuff and they say, well, isn't this essentially what you did last year? And you're like, yeah, because it works. I've refined it over 15 years. They're like, yeah, but that's the same. You got to do something new. And, uh, and everything has to be on computers because computers make everything better. Evan, who works as a TA and textbook creator at university in the area of economics, has thoughts on this too, given his occasional experiences of increasingly infantile first-year students who get their mothers to email him about marks on tests and so on. Basically the same thing I see daily. Parents who think the job of an adult is making sure we build a mythology of how wonderful and special their kid is while carefully ensuring they never meet a problem someone else doesn't sweep away for them. I'm not even 25 yet. Um, I think that that view that kids sort of aren't old enough, and by kids I mean teens and maybe even some of the students in my lecture halls are not old enough to make their own decisions, is widely held. Like that, that, that has been my impression. Um, and it's also been my experience to watch, and you know, I'm not talking about high schoolers here, I'm talking about first year university students who are only a bit older, um, 18, 19, somewhere in there, 
and they do make a lot of mistakes and they don't prioritize things right. And they haven't proven themselves on a lot of axes. And so I don't think it's, it's an unfound view that, uh, you know, a student or a child is missing a big part of the picture when they're saying things and making decisions. Should they be left to make the mistakes? Is that what you should do? I would hate to make any sweeping sort of, well, no, I wouldn't. I definitely think that you could probably come up with exceptions, but I think the rules got to be, you know, you you need to decide ahead of time, at what point are you going to let them stand on their own two feet? Because I think the longer you don't let them do it, the longer it's going to be until they are capable of doing things. I haven't met a person who won't admit to having made a bunch of mistakes in his or her life and yet they're, you know, living better lives than they once did. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to let people grow and that's going to occasionally mean them learning their limits. Scientists believe that people haven't actually reached cognitive maturity until more like 25 or 30. So it's yeah. interesting that we're we're jumping the gun on that a little bit, but I think that I'm not a parent, but teaching teenagers, there are teenagers who just they're not going to be listening to you anymore. They may be mm-hmm. they may be 16 but they will not be listening to you anymore. They're, they they just, something, a switch gets flipped and it doesn't matter how ready they are or not, you're done. They're not going to mm-hmm. listen. And I, I think that mm-hmm. happens. And I think that as an adult, maybe you have to kind of graciously sort of say, okay, like the, we, yeah, can't, well, we can't I, fight forever. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely something to that because yeah, you're right. There's a third portion in which, you know, you have to take temperament mm-hmm. and personality into account. Um, you don't want to keep flogging a dead horse. That's stressful for everybody. What we're increasingly doing is not really making them learn to do anything. Yeah. They're, it's increasingly about what's my identity in this classroom? You know, write, write an essay about your identity and how it's changed by reading this book or whatever. Um, it's about, you know, comfort. Um, I, I don't want students to legitimately be fearful of their safety or health. Nobody would want that. But one of the things that they talk about in the Jonathan Haidt book is, is that the, there's a shift in the, in the justification for challenging the class syllabus, which is no longer, well, it's all old, dead, white dudes. It's like now it's like if I hear about that, that's triggering to me. I'm no longer comfortable in hearing about that idea. And I think that that's not good. I think that you should go. I had a prof who used to say, there's information that should make you uncomfortable and you should hear it anyway. And that helps us deal with what's actually going on. We're we're not imagining a world we'd like to have. We're contending with the real world. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't push harder to try to have a more idealistic world. It just means we, we need to take stock of what we have, understand it, and then maybe we can work towards fixing what we agree are the problems. Melody remembers being raised to gain no life experiences and thus not be permitted opinions, and this carrying over into being middle-aged and not being married or having kids of your own, but attending a church and trying to have opinions anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's true. I might need more than yep for my podcast. <laughs> uh, I remember before I was married, you were really, I was really not allowed to have an opinion about relationships, about sex, about children, because I had not experienced any of those things. Mm-hmm. And still, I don't have kids. And society at large is pretty much like, well, you don't get to have an opinion about kids. True. And my reply now is, if your child is affecting my quality of life, I get to have an opinion about it. 
I'm in a even more complicated position that I mean, I'm an uncle and everything, but I've never had children, but I teach about 70 a day. Yeah, I have for 20 years. So it's like sounds like hell. I know certain things about kids. I'll be the first to admit that I'm, I'm not a father. So there's many things I do not know about kids. But there are things that I know about your kids that you don't know. Yep. Yep. I think that's pretty true of teachers. So they would encourage us to have kids as soon as we were allowed to have sex. First of all, they were abusing all the children, but they did release something called the charter. And according to the charter, you were not allowed to have sex until you were 16. Mm-hmm. But then they would encourage you to get pregnant as soon as possible. So I remember being like 21 and not having a child. And people would be like, what's wrong with you? And I remember being younger, like when I was like 15 and I had a friend who was 19 and she didn't have any kids. And I was just like, there must be something horribly wrong with her. And I don't want to be like her because she's 19, which means she's been having sex. Like she's been able to have sex now for like three years and she's still not pregnant. And it was just like, you didn't have value unless you had a kid because obviously when you start having children, you're more solidified, you're more committed to the group or to the environment that you're in. And then we would get a day off, like as singles, we would get one day off. Parents would get two days off. And so they would try and incentivize you to have kids. Like if you have, if you have a kid, you can have a, a family day and a free day. But if you're single, then you have to take care of the kids so the parents can have a day off and you only get one day off a week. And like your, your spare time should be spent taking care of other kids mm-hmm. because what are you going to do anyway? Like you're just a yeah. single. So, you know, it's a very pathetic life to live unless you have children. That's resonating on a, on a very deep level. And I think I can add another layer mm-hmm. to what you're describing as a, as a brethren woman. I remember vividly well, I can remember two divisions, right? I can remember the one in, I think it was 89. And I can remember the one that was a little bit later. I remember vividly my mom saying to me, now don't worry, no one is going to ask your thoughts on what we should do regarding this division. No one is going to ask you what side of the division you think the assembly should go on. And that was a big deal for us young guys because I was in 89, I was 19. And in 91, I was 21. Mm-hmm. I lived in fear of that person sidling over and asking mm-hmm. a very specific question. And the specific question was, are you clear about the division? Are you clear? Yeah. It was a delight to stand beside Mark Vetter mm-hmm. and have someone come over and say, you know, I was just wondering uh, if you were clear about the division. Clear. And yeah. Mark said, how interesting. I was just wondering the same thing about you. Ooh. And he said, well, you know, with the Lord's leading, you know, I certainly trust that I'm, Mark was like, oh, I'm relieved to hear that. And Mark was so good at that stuff. All right. And, and he basically tried to say, so you're 100% comfortable with everything but the division. And Mark right, right. didn't, didn't want to say that he was 100% comfortable right. with everything about the division. So the, the middle-aged right. guy said, hmm, like maybe you could, maybe you could tell me what you're not comfortable and you know he's angling to mm-hmm. get him kicked out which is what he's doing and you know if you're right. a girl, if you're a girl you don't have to take a side it's assumed that you're just with that whatever you're wherever you are that's who you're with right, if you're, right, if you're 19 right. and you're a guy you're you're in the in the mess i went to the brothers meetings so mark wow. said well i do have some thoughts but he said 
I think I should actually write them down. And the other guy, his eyes lit up because, man, you want some evidence to kick someone out. And Mark says, there's only one Marcus. problem, though. Mark said, like, you know, I'm, I'm like 23. I'm not old enough to do this. So what, how about we do this? I'll write down anything that I feel I'm uncomfortable with. And you add to that list all the things that you feel that you're uncomfortable with. And we'll put mm-hmm. our names to it. We'll put your name first because you're older. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll have that. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing how that letter never got written. That paper, that never, and that collaboration suddenly never got mentioned again. Not surprised. Not one bit surprised. But Mark, there, there's ways in which Mark just, this is when I first met him, that I was in a position mm-hmm. of, holy crap, they're going to start questioning me and I might get kicked out. You know, the Gestapo oh. are here. And Mark would just yeah. wrap him around his finger and kick him in the ass and send them across the yard. And right. Mark was not even 25 at this point, And he just knew how to do that. And you know, there's a darker side to manipulation, but man, he was good at that stuff. Mm. Because I think in a way they're wielding power. And a lot of times you yeah. won't be surprised to hear that this wasn't a popular guy. It wasn't no. a, a brilliant guy. Surprised. It wasn't a guy with lots of stat. Like he was angling to get those things. And he was trying to climb up. And in particular, he had to do that because he hadn't been born in the Brethren either. There's no one in the division who was more vindictive about maybe people who left and then want to come back and, and so on, than right. people who had themselves left and come back or not been born into it, whatever it was, whoever had yes. the most to lose, were just ruthless about not letting people back in and this kind of thing. I don't know if anyone can understand a church where you have to fight not to lose your seat. And then if you lose it, then fighting to try and get it back. And if you're me, like you're never getting it back, like that's it for you. Uh, I think most churches would be doing anything to try and get you to come in just come in and listen. They'd love that. And with us, it's like, no, it's competitive. Um, And we have lost that game. Um, This all eventually kind of leads into a Jonathan hype discussion. And even though you haven't read the book yet, do you have some thoughts on the whole idea of the coddling of children being bad? And that we're doing it. I read the opening, and which means I know the three great untruths. Yep. And I, I think they're solid, right? So the first one he says is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. We've sort of taught children this, that that you should avoid anything that you know that that harms you in any way or stretches you in any way. Kind of the idea of trauma that that we've taught children that once you've been traumatized, you're broken forever. And right. that's you do get hurt hurt when you face trauma. And you should avoid it. But once you've been traumatized, very often it gives you something, some kind of resilience or a lesson or something. At where I teach uh, doing like the print, like I, I teach introductory economics, we require what in Ontario we would call grade nine level math. You need to be able to manipulate a linear equation. That's the hardest math. And you will rarely do it. Most of what you'll be doing is calculating percentages or, you know, uh, multiplying or something. We, we really require very little math. Just saying that you'll be required to have grade nine math in this class is enough to get people to drop. The second one was you should always trust your intuition. So I think that a lot of people are trusting their fear. Yeah. So what we've seen, the the larger trend is this moving away from religion. And one consequence of that is we're having people moving away from wisdom. Not that religion's the only way that you could reach that, but that for so many people for so long, it was just, what's my book of wisdom? It's my holy book. Nowadays, if you ask people, well, where do you get wisdom, if not religion? Where do you get 
that there is such a thing anymore as wisdom. Right. Well, they'll say personal experience, right? right? I, I went, so I think there's, there's a first level of arrogance, which is that the self is somehow complete already that, that there's, that there's no growth to be done, but there's like, I think a much deeper level of arrogance, which is that nothing that ever came before you could be helpful to you now. And that's, I think that's blatantly stupid. The test wasn't unfair. It was just, I just pushed back, you know, well, the average is where we want it to be. We teach this every semester. This is the same content we did last year. We didn't have any problems. And eventually when you help them deconstruct it, they go, I could study better. They realize that their feelings of it, their feelings that they were cheated and their feelings that they did everything that they could have done are all wrong. And right. They need to listen to a, a second person to hear that mm-hmm. every, all of the, the way that they're operating isn't working. But when I help them stop to say it's professor such and such as problem or this course, the, the test was too hard and they can just say, I made a mistake. What that means then, I think, and this is why they respond well to it, is that means that they can actually do something about fixing the problem too. Yeah. So they fail quiz one. It's the first time they've ever gotten a 60. They're crying, uh, you know, in my office saying like, I've never gotten a 60. Like, am I stupid? Right. And you're, you're saying all this, like, first of all, you are not 60. Okay. You are not a 60%. This test is a 60%. And secondly, you got to university. I think there's something better you could be doing. I bet you can study. I bet you have done some stuff in your life. And I think that you could do better on the next test. And they usually feel better. And what's odd or what might fly in the face of conventional wisdom is I think I actually make their life more comp, like not more complicated exactly, but I put way more of the burden on them and they respond well to it. Well, people accuse me of being negative because I notice problems and want to talk about them. And I guess I'm trying to achieve hope. And as long as Mm. I know that things aren't right and we're not going to talk about them, I don't feel hopeful. I don't feel hopeful until we recognize that things need to change and start trying to change them. And that seems negative mm-hmm. to some people. Right. Jenny from a sword class voices the frustration and strain it can put on one to be, as I was for a while, between apartments for a few months there, to be 30 and back living with your parents again. I think it's very much about agency, but it's about being in control of your own life. I'm in a place where I'm not in control of my life. And it is eating up a chunk of my um, a chunk of my energy to just put that aside. Johan's dad, Don, voices the common opinion that kids are living in a more dangerous world today, with more kids getting abducted than ever before. I think it was pretty well safer back in the day. Um, less traffic on the roads, less less at least in my neighborhood anyway, less chances of uh, being uh, stopped and propositioned to get in a car or something. Um, And yes, I got got on my bike and went off riding at an early age and my parents I had no idea where I was and what I was doing because I had lots of friends in the neighborhood. But I guess they trusted me. Sherry and Jonathan Haidt have been reading the same stats, though. I know that a lot of people are more paranoid nowadays, but from what I've 
spread statistically, the world is a safer place. So um, in keeping with that, are modern kids given more or less freedom than you were given as a child? I would say less. How old were you when you were first allowed that freedom? So when I was really, really little, like five, seven, eight, we lived in apartments. And so my parents wouldn't have just let me out because those tended to be more busy neighborhoods or busy streets. But once we moved to a house that was quieter when I was about 10 or 11, you know, obviously I was allowed to walk to the uh, bus stop by myself. When you were 10? Yeah, 10 or so. And then um, I didn't learn how to ride a bike until I was 12. But by the time I was about 12, my parents trusted me to, you know, walk several blocks away or go, you know, go to the convenience store, you know. uh, I walked to kindergarten when I was five, like a mile. And so one of the things he's writing about in his book is that the age has gotten older and older so that now there's a lot of parents that are really uncomfortable with their kids being out of range of them knowing exactly where they are until they're like 16. And they want a lot of like phones. They want to text and that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be like that. I could definitely see Chris being like that. He doesn't like it when our cat leaves the yard. Right. So... (laughs) I think they should be able to listen to the voice of experience as much as they can, but be allowed to stumble and screw up because you can learn from experience, listening to experience, and you can also learn from school of hard knocks. I would wish to, you know, provide the kids with as much guidance as, as possible, but, you know, if you can't, you can't. Sherry and I kind of agreed that if you don't let them learn, they don't let them make any mistakes, that they're not, they're not going to learn properly. Right. I agree. It's hard to teach people their limits when you don't let them. It's hard to believe that, you know, something is a limit uh, until you do it. That's but when right. I was growing up, my mom told me like, you know, slow down, don't eat that much. You'll make yourself sick. And that never happened to me. Right. Like it just, I ate right. and ate and ate and I was a teenage boy and I ate lots of pizza and whatever. And if it was candy, I could handle it. I went to Eastside Mario's and I was just demolishing the garlic loaves and I ate eight of them. And then I threw up and it was like, it really took me throwing up in a public bathroom for me to realize that like, this is a real thing that you can overdo. Eight is too many. Apparently You're eight right. is the eight is, eight is my limit. I don't want to speak for others, but I called my girlfriend and I said, and I was sort of joking a bit. I was like, do you think I should like talk to Eastside Mario's and like, see like if they had made the bread wrong or like, do you know, maybe there was food poisoning. Like, why do you think I threw up? And she was like, are you joking? It's one of those things everyone knows, except you were the last person to find out. And so you feel a bit embarrassed, but yeah, like that's a limitation. And so do we want, I guess the question is, do we want everybody to end up in an Eastside Mario's washroom throwing up their supper to figure out that, you know, you can eat too much or you can overindulge? I'm fine and I'm better now. So <laughs> I, I think principles to guide you is a good idea. Rules seem strong. Yeah. And then like somebody actually making a schedule for your life or, or like, you know, having a, a huge hand in it, like I think you've described a bit in your podcast, that's when it seems to go right off the rails, right? Is when, because they're they're not even, they're on some level rejecting you when you're not allowed to make any of your own decisions, right? Yes. Just saying that, get out of the driver's seat, let me do it. And that mm-hmm. seems to be, in my life anyway, they were saying, let go and let God. They're saying you have to follow the Lord's will. So all of the Christian talk was about surrendering all, surrendering all to the Lord. And 
it didn't take me too long to realize that they wanted me to surrender it to them to give to God. And I wasn't sure God was ever getting the package. Um, right. And, and if I dealt directly with God, that that wasn't cool. Chase Semko of the Northern Pikes has adult children. And I have a daughter who's 25. And so they're kind of a little bit out of the school mm-hmm. loop there, so to speak. But it's, uh, it's interesting getting their perspective on things, you know. It would be. I think that the really, well, I think that the troubling part is with people that are still very much forming into human beings. This this hits them much more than the rest of us. So I'm teaching 15 year olds primarily. And what I'm finding is that it's like teaching 12 year olds, nothing against them. Some of them are brilliant kids, but they haven't really been developing for a couple of years in a normal way, especially socially or in terms of advocating for themselves or dealing with adults or whatever they, we sort of had a couple of years where we just paused and they need to catch up now. Wow. Yeah. That's sort of a, I'm sure there's going to be so many, uh, so many sociological things that, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we don't, that are even still at this point unknown and we'll still be encountering for years to come as a result of all this. When we were kids, when there were those social disputes of who gets the bicycle or who broke the Frisbee or whatever it is, right, right, right. there was this great incentive that we better sort it out among ourselves. Because if we bring an adult in, we are not going to like how the adult decides to settle the situation. The adult mm. is going to say that no one gets the bike or I'm taking the Frisbee or, you know, very often the adult shuts down all the fun. And so you don't right. bring them in. And that right. has changed significantly so that now when people go to college, when there's any social disputes, they immediately start bringing in the adults, quote unquote, the someone official to deal with everything. Mm. Mm. And the adults normally do spoil all the fun. People are used to that whenever there's any kind of a dispute, you always appeal to authority immediately. And that you people have lost the ability to negotiate without e- either they won't talk or it becomes mm-hmm. abusive. And there's not that middle right. ground. The parents have an idea that an idyllic world can exist and that they can create it for their children. And their motivation is great. They want to create an idyllic world where their child is safe from everything and they will go out and fight and defend that. It's the idyllic world that they've created that is the biggest problem because it creates the wrong idea in the children that they too can create an idyllic world if they just shut up and do what they're told. One of the things I'm exploring is that not being content unless everything's ideal, that's not very livable. And yes. it doesn't have to be religion. It can be ideology. And I'm connecting the words etymologically. Yes. There. Ideology, ideal, idyllic. The idea that, well, in my head, I have an idea. And I think that what would be ideal is if exactly how I imagined it, that it should be able to be like that. And I think it's hard, important to raise, especially adolescents, that just because you can imagine it in your head doesn't mean that you can make that happen and everyone will praise you. Right. And it, it doesn't match the actual experience we have living in this world. Anything idyllic is temporary, a day, a year, a week. Um, we can have idyllic moments, um, but it's not sustainable every moment here in this world. It's not going to happen. So the the lie is teaching our children just by what we're doing that the idyllic can exist and we can create it. So now we have, like here in the United States, we have a group of people who were sold this idea that a, an idyllic world can exist. And now they're fighting because they feel people are taking it away from them when the truth of it is that it never existed. 
Isn't that, isn't that both sides? That the one side is saying that the world is very problematic. I'm picturing an ideal world, and we can make that happen if we shut up all the right people. And the other side is right. Saying, the other side is saying that we had the ideal world more or less, and now you've ruined it, and so now we're going to punish you and complain. I think most people have a good sense of who they are until someone tries to make them doubt it. And so, at the very least, it's not that people don't change, or that you know they might not realize that what they thought they wanted wasn't what they wanted. But I think every individual should be free to make that choice, to, to figure that out for themselves. It, it's their life. And so whether I think something's going to go well or not for someone, it doesn't matter. I, I'm only interpreting whether they'll have success with what they want to do based on whether I think I could have success. I have no idea. It might be a better fit for them. They might have more ambition or more drive or more discipline in order to go after what they want to do. Um, I feel the experience of finding your own way is like essential to maturing in a healthy, proper way. Absolutely. Yeah. So if everybody yeah. gives you all the answers to this is your political position, these are your opinions and this is your lifestyle and this is your life, how you dress, how you comport yourself. I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> no, it's my it's my opinion that that actually stunts people's development if you take away the choices and don't let them have the choices. So oh, I absolutely. think I think people have to make their mistakes and hopefully they're not. Yeah, and you know, as when I was really little, I remember really wanting to learn from others' mistakes, and I think there is some wisdom in that. You know, if you've seen three people jump off a cliff, maybe you, you'd consider doing not doing it yourself. Mm. But at the same time, I was too quick to dismiss people who wanted to learn from their own mistakes. I thought, well, how foolish. Why would you ever do that? Why not just listen to the people who have gone before and who are wiser or whatever? But it took trying that route for myself, again, me trying my own thing, because my parents didn't force me to do any of it. And seeing that it wasn't working for me to finally understand, ah, now I see why these people so insisted on on learning for themselves, because there really is nothing like firsthand experience. I could read all the parenting books I want. I could babysit and have an idea of what works and what doesn't work for children. And I'm not saying that someone who doesn't have their own children has nothing to offer, but it is nothing. It is not the same as having your own yeah. and it never will be. There's nothing that compares to it. It's like the difference between learning about how to drive a car and actually putting the hours behind driving one. Have you ever had people sort of comment on how you're raising your kids and sort of cross that boundary and suggest you should be making different parental choices? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, but that was really early on. I think I've learned since then, one, not to care what other people think, and also uh, how to not engage in that conversation, not allow them to, you know, continue to have a say or whatever. I, I'm pretty firm in what my own philosophy and I don't know. Young people absolutely know who they are and what they should do. They're just wrong. <laughs> they lack. <laughs> that's not true. I mean, they 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 lack the life experience to know much of anything. Yes, but that doesn't mean that their construction of who they are isn't perfectly valid. And, and that's such a hard thing for me as an educator, and as someone who's getting older by the second, as we all are, I suppose, to uh, come to terms with, is the fact that. Um, my experience doesn't trump their lived experience, even if mine is longer. Um, even if I think that I know what kind of a person um, they are, 
and what would be best for them. Maybe I do, but it isn't my place. I, I can share my own experiences and I can, I can educate, right? That's what I do. I try to. Um, and I can try to help keep doors open for young people. Um, but, and give them options, but they have to, we have to, you know, develop ourselves, don't we? Um, I, I was sure I knew who I was when I was young and, and of course I was totally wrong and that's okay. Uh, what's important is that in the moments where I wasn't sure and those happened, they happened to everybody, I knew that I was lucky enough to have someone there that, that I could talk to, that I could share my concerns with, not to tell me who I am, but to help me find myself. Um, that was, that was really, really important, um, to be validated as, as a kid. Uh, and uh, again, as you get older and cynical, you, you want to just shake these kids and say, Hey, come on, smarten up. This is what you need to do. This is what you need to know. And you can't do that. That's, they, they have to grow and develop on their own, which I know, Sounds a little bit wishy-washy, but it's true. We all did. Some of us do it the hard way. Some of us do it the, I, the easy way. In, in fact, you know what? Sometimes I think the easier way just think, makes things harder when you're older. I, I don't think that struggling when you're young is such a bad thing at all. I think it just helps helps us get to where we need to be. Young people, do they know who they are and what they should do, or should they shut up and listen to adults? I would say young people need to shut up and listen to the deeper parts of themselves because who they are is there in them and they can find it. But they're so busy on the external, listening to people telling them what to do and not do, listening to judgments about themselves, making judgments about other people. Their mind is filled with that and they cannot hear their true self speaking to them. It's about that thing where um, you're maybe an adolescent and you start seeing inconsistencies, hypocrisies, you know, things with your church culture or whatever, and somebody basically says, well, you're a kid. Like, what do you know? And, and they try to shut you up because they say you're not seeing what you're seeing. Um, when my children were younger, their dad uh, got a tumor on his optic nerve. And it was his decision never to use the term cancer, never to talk about chemo, not really explain to anyone except between he and I and his doctors exactly how serious this was. So for two years... And we find out that our children lived with the secret in the house and they knew that there was something going on that they didn't know about, but they didn't know how to ask about it. Um, he eventually died um, of a heart attack, not of the tumor, but the stress from going through all that certainly added to that. So I knew there was a chance he was going to die for years and years and years. They did not. And, and it was I went along with the decision to protect them from this and to not tell them. So we do this all the time. We think we're protecting our children um, by hiding the difficult things from them. But, and so when they talk about it, we'll say, oh, no, 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 it, it, that's, don't worry. You don't, what they're really saying is you don't need to worry about that. But they're there. They're in the house. This is happening. This is the energy they're experiencing or whatever the experiences that they're having. And you're denying that real experience that they're having and confusing them by hiding the hard stuff. Like Bethany's mom had Alzheimer's and um, her dad, he found out about it from the doctor and decided never to tell her. Mm -hmm. That was his own decision. And I, I don't judge him for the decision, 
but it 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 worked. It worked for them. She knew she was slipping, but mm-hmm. she never had the excuse to say, "Oh, I have Alzheimer's," or you know, or the, I have to fear the Alzheimer's coming because it was never told. And then it just it just gradually came in, and and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's more like she gradually moved out. This reminds me of when you're talking about children. So she's sort of at the other end of of the lifespan, and there's really no reason to bother little children or people who are dying with certain unpleasant realities, difficult realities. But don't you think that with adolescents and people who are younger, uh, sometimes the words you need them to be able to make sense of your world? I think you need them, especially to interact with the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, you need to know what the rest of the world is calling that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a different way of looking at it, well, you can communicate that. But at least once the kids of a certain age, yeah, I would agree. But I think there's benefit in not giving the word cancer more dignity than it deserves because it's it's got it's it's a whole spirit now that's out there by yeah. everybody's fearing so much i'm thinking more things like you know many of my friends have been alcoholics there's been one word i've never been allowed to use in their presence alcoholic no. and um oh. <laughs> i always fe- i always felt like i wasn't the alcoholic but i certainly put up with a lot of crap from alcoholics my whole life and not my family, but, you know, people, friends, my dads and moms, and having to deal with the kind of nonsense that alcoholics just seem to tow in their wake, if you're with them, but never be allowed to say alcoholism, alcoholics or drinking problem, like, you're not allowed to say those things. It kind of robs you of a chance to really have peace about what's literally happening to you in your own evening. Yes. But then I would look at my sister Karen as a as an example of being able to break through that. That's one of the things that she's good at. You're also good at it. And that I've would had be to be, and I resent it. Okay, well, you 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 don't name it with that word, but you take and you describe it with words that are far more scathing and far more like shameful. You know, like, not trying to. <laughs> one of my favorite lines from you describing in this podcast I just listened to you were like having somebody lead a Bible discussion who is obviously inebriated it was like having a fine social gathering and somebody is dragging a, a bloody body a carcass of a dog through the middle of it and puts it in the punch bowl and, <laughs> i mean something like that takes the, the word alcoholism and, and and instead of it just being the thing that everybody has in their mind it it, it it opens it up into a whole nother world of how horrible it really is and that's where i don't mean to be annoying but man am i annoying when people give me a rule, it's like, okay, you can talk, but there's this one word you can't say. It's like, done. Okay, I'm going to use 50 other words. And I don't <laughs> intend to be annoying, but it works out that way. And it usually ends up being worse. And I, I've, I, think, it, I think I naturally developed it from my, my family setting, just this coping mechanism that if you make a rule that I don't like, I will you know, really make you wish you didn't give me that rule because I will be free somehow if I need to be. And I think I'm old enough to be a little bit free. I don't think I was very free when I was a kid. I don't think I was that free in my 20s. Would you agree with me Mm -hmm. that we're doing a disservice to raise children that they're, they're growing up in a world that's very hostile to them, that has bad, evil, racists and sexists and homophobes who are trying to get them, and that they're basically screwed and so they have to fight against those people and not listen to them and cancel them. And, and, and also to raise them that whenever something bad happens, there's one reason there's like one group of people doing one thing. And that explains everything. 
So I think you'd agree that that's not a a, a thing that's going to prepare the kids for the real world. I don't think that's a sophisticated view, and I don't think it's a helpful view. Um, I it's think like that Catherine Burble Singh is a biracial headmistress at a school in London, England, that specializes in you know kids that are the children of immigrants and lower income kids. And she does the opposite. She raises the standards. She raises the structure. She doesn't make things easier. She makes things harder in a way. And she also encourages them to feel free to aspire to be like people like Winston Churchill. Instead of getting rid of him on the basis of his color, she's saying, well, you can be the good things that he was and you cannot be the bad things that he was. But right. she's saying, don't tell her students that they're screwed. Don't tell them that because of their race, they will never succeed because that we have systemic racism. And until we overthrow society, you have no hope. She's saying that's a terrible thing to tell 10 year olds. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Of course, nobody would think that if, if we saw some sort of flagrant discrimination, we would all say that that should not happen. There, there is a bit of a non-starter to the idea that circumstances beyond your control if you want to, I mean, I, I sort of subscribe to the belief that your your race is determined for you. I, I don't know if racial identity will become a thing where you can, you know, uh, feel differently than how you're born, but that there are demographic things about you that were not picked by you, that you're, this is the hand you're dealt. I don't tell my students to dwell on that because they can't change it, right? Like if, if that's sort of what you think, that there are sort of these immutable characteristics about people whatever they may be, life circumstances, um, which might be, you know, your, like your socioeconomic background as well, um, not necessarily something as, um, as demographic as, as, as uh, race or gender. That is already picked. But what isn't picked is how hard you're going to work in this class. What isn't picked yet is what you'll choose to do with your time. And you get to pick that. And if there are cards stacked against you, that's terrible. Like on like that's horror. Like for 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 totally unfair reasons, that is terrible. But focusing on that isn't going to make you better. Um, it might make you insightful. Like I'm not saying it's not worth thinking about. But I I try to teach my students. I want you to think about what it is you want to be. And so if that's a YouTube influencer, if that's a business person, I don't care. Like anything you want. And I say to them, be inevitable. Do whatever it takes to be so good at that, that if there is some sort of glass ceiling, that you just break right through it. That if there's somebody holding you back because of any conceptions about you, your nationality, your race, your gender, if, if there's any barriers to your entry, that you're so good at the thing, they will not deny you entry because people you're so color. good. People of color have been, and women have been doing this forever. And I don't think we're doing the kids a favor that what I see a lot in my profession is someone saying, well, there's, there's, there's a problem. Like uh, they're struggling because they, they don't feel that racially they fit in the school or, or their gender identity, or whatever it is. So mm -hmm. the first move is, well, let's make everything easy for them. Let's remove a lot of things. Let's give them fewer lessons, less work. Let's, let's take away the challenges. That doesn't seem to be the right direction. I, I don't think it'll get them hired. I'm a labor economist in training. I think about people getting hired and, and people being offered wages. I don't think that decreasing the rigor that students go through 
and not developing their skills in math and in writing and in sort of niche, more niche areas of science or social studies or welding, whatever it is, you need a skill. You need at least one thing you can do. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. James says, safer today? No question. Kids wear bike helmets, are escorted to and from school by anxious parents, and I've even seen some toddlers attached to their parents with a leash. If a kid falls off school playground equipment, they're liable to fall on a rubber mat rather than on hard asphalt. Dodgeball is now forbidden at most elementary schools because someone might get hurt. Safer? Oh yeah. Desirable? Hell no. I remember all the stuff you mentioned. Our moms ordered us outside after school until we were called in for dinner. Rode our bikes all through the neighborhood and beyond, often after nightfall, probably beginning age eight. First day of kindergarten, my mom walked me to school a half mile away. After that, I was on my own. Summer camp, beginning age nine. Riding bikes to the ocean, 20 miles round trip, age 12. Worked an entire summer in Germany, age 17 and much, much more. The added risks resulted in a richer life. Shalomi Homi says, The world is definitely different, but I don't think the world is any safer or more dangerous as a general rule. As to whether kids know who they are, Carol, from my church, says, I think young people know more than they know. They know on some level more than they've experienced. As they experience, they realize or know what they knew, and then some. My kids know financial debt is not a goal or good. They don't have debt yet once, and if they do, they will know what they knew. The body has insanely complex systems of knowing. Everyone has to earn their own wisdom, though, to have and to hold. Shalomi Homi says, young people know who they are and what they should do, but they don't know that they know. So good experiences are needed to see, and good mentoring is needed to translate and articulate, to help them process, own, and mobilize themselves. Miriam from my church says, I don't know the answer, but I think young people should make their own choices and mistakes, learn their own lessons, and live their own lives. Obviously, I'm not speaking of children, but young adults. Jane says, I think they, we, know who we are in the moment, but maturation, cognitive development, changing circumstances, and learning new things keep us evolving into new people as we go along. The person I was 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, are all different, and I expect to change more as I gain new knowledge and perspectives. Thomas from my church says, having lived with a serious health issue my whole life, the question of who I am has never been an issue. Having been trained at the master's level in dealing with people, I have found that not many people really know themselves. Knowing oneself is a case of skill, natural or learned. Circumstances are instrumental to gaining that knowledge. So in a sense, the shorter lifespan can yield less of these learning moments. In my case, I didn't. But having recently reunited with my birth mother, I am learning who I am all over again. So nearly a half century into life, I am faced with being young again. Anson says, I think this is more about wisdom and less about age. AJ says, I know an awful lot of adults who don't know themselves or know how to be honest with themselves. Like I said, this song was about not enjoying the condescension and suspicion being in your 20s and having thoughts were met with in the circles I grew up in. 
I wrote the lyrics for it back in the day, but it never worked out a tune. I thought I'd include it in the podcast, so I knew I'd have to write a tune right quick. The idea was to make something a bit like a Broadway musical or something, and maybe ask someone with keyboard skills to collaborate with me. But that didn't happen. A couple of days ago, the truck wouldn't start again, and there was a snowstorm, so I just sat down and wrote a tune. It ended up sounding a bit like Brethren People singing at meeting, and a lot more like a campfire sing-along song of some kind. I think it would go very well at a young people's hymn sing. I sing most comfortably in C major, so I find I write too many songs in that key, making them sound more similar than they really need to sound. So with this one, I wrote it entirely in my head on purpose to free me up from the fretboard of a guitar, singing it into my phone. All these questions, all these questions, all these questions that you have... And not a one matches our answer. These questions must be wrong. Can't you turn them off? Our rituals are designed to do that for you. And it's too late. The clock runs out. It's time to sing the song. You're just a kid. What could you know? You need us to protect you. You need a line to toe. We know what's going on with you, which way the cold wind blows. You're just a kid now, honestly, what could you know? And then getting the guitar out days later to see what odd random key and chords I had used. Well, C major, it turned out. So I moved it higher to try to hide that. Otherwise, it was going to sound too much like Hello Down There, Red Sweater, and The Magic Castle. I'd had Evan email me a drum part for The Voice of Death, recorded on a digital kit he'd rented for a Christmas livestream. So I emailed him this newly minted song. All these questions, all these questions, all these questions that you have, not one matches our answers. These questions must be wrong, can't you turn them off? Our, our rituals. rituals. Designed to do that for you, but it's too late, the clock's run down, it's time to sing the song. You're just a kid, what could you know? And asked him to do a shuffle on it. He quickly obliged before returning the kit. emailed me a couple of takes of it, and I plugged it into the song just like that. To try to make Evan's rhythm even more tasty and shuffly, I did the old Johnny Cash trick of recording two tracks of rhythmic strums on a guitar with a playing card stuck in the strings to mute them. One thing that's bothered me for my whole life is every time I'm purposely or more often not purposely being myself and someone comes over and tries to adjust my behavior, thinking, preferences, or feeling to be more like what's going on in the group and what's expected there, they nudge me normalward with the word just. Can't you just enjoy our worship team? Can't you just be more happy? Can't you just stop analyzing everything? Can't you just stop upsetting people? Why can't you just go along? Why can't you just be happy? It's like they're trying to tweak or adjust you rather than just leave you alone. And they're using just to try to hide, soften, minimize, or pretend they're not actually doing just that. Or that it's really just not a very big deal when it might be to you. 
which is why I am particularly attentive when people try this just trick out on God while praying. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you just stop making Jeff's life so difficult and okay, and just bless him and just help him have a, just a, an easier time this week. We ask that you just be with him and just fill him with a sense of complacent, unquestioning lassitude and lethargy and just quietness and stillness, we pray. So, in this song, the title of which starts with that minimizing word just, I put some percussive whispered justs at the start. I could have used tambourines, I suppose. Just, 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 just. My sister dropped by with my nephew when I was working on this song, so I asked her if she'd sing on it. As usual, she declined, having a lovely voice and zero confidence trying to fit it into a song, particularly one she doesn't know. But she'd bought a glass singing bowl and shyly asked if I'd set up a mic and let her freeform some wordless vocals as she became accustomed to playing it. My sister looks for activities that are playful and meditative and serene. I set up the mic, left her in the room for a couple of minutes, and went for a walk, and it went well. So I came back in and set things up to let her double her voice too. I suppose I could just stick her improv stuff onto the front of the song as an intro for no particular reason, couldn't I? And simulate a whole Plymouth Brethren youth group hymn-sing of voices by a campfire on a lake at the end of the song? Yes, I think I could do that. Trust us, we know how. 
tell us Cause we really wanna hear Here's a question You just answer Don't think too long Just be head full of questions Or of answers Which would you hold more dear? You're just a kid What could you Now honestly 